Joshua for uh, about four months, and so if you would, would you would you turn to the book of Joshua? We're going to be Joshua chapter one, verses one through two, and my aim this morning is to introduce to you to this this great book. So Joshua chapter one, verses one through two. So hear the word of our God. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Oh, Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching and the teaching of your word now. Amen. So I want to begin this series and begin this sermon with, a, with an opening illustration. And so I want to begin by telling you about a chair that used to sit in my living room. Um, this chair was a marketplace fine, and so it was a good deal. In fact, this chair was free, one of the best deals you can get on furniture. And this chair, it was, as I describe it to you, it was light blue in color. It wasn't the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen. And it had a very strange shape to it. Its back only went up about halfway up your back. And it had a, a long bottom. So I think the idea was that you would, you would sit there and that your feet would extend out over the bottom and the bottom would support it. And this bottom had a very pronounced arc to it. Now, here's the thing that you need to know about this chair. This chair was exceptionally uncomfortable. And that is, I think, to put it in too mild of terms, I think it may have been the most uncomfortable chair ever designed because you couldn't sit in it without something hurting. If you try to sit upright in it with your back directly against the back, after a while your back would hurt because only a little bit of was supported. And then if you tried to scoot down a bit to try a different position, then it would only get worse. And so no matter what you would do, no matter how you tried, no matter how you tried to contort your body to the strange shape of chair, it was just uncomfortable. Its size, its design, its angles just made this thing impossible to sit on, and we eventually got rid of it on Marketplace for free to someone, someone else. And, and so the question is, well, why, why would we want to think about this chair? Well, I think this chair is helpful because it has something in common with the book of Joshua. Joshua is an uncomfortable book. No matter how you try to situate yourself in the book of Joshua, you will find discomfort. Joshua is a book full of hard, jagged edges and obtuse angles. It isn't a cozy book, nor is it a book that's going to fill you with warm, fuzzy feelings inside as you work through its chapters. It's not a book that you will hear someone say as they, they talk to you about their Bible reading plan, oh, I just love the book of Joshua. It's my favorite book. I just live there for months. Joshua is a book that unsettles us and disturbs us. It is uncomfortable. And I want to begin our series by introducing you to some of the hard, jagged edges of Joshua. And I want to do that by taking you to three different scenes in the book. And so the first scene is the most well-known scene from the book of Joshua, the Battle of Jericho. I assume that everyone here is familiar with it. It's in every 
children's storybook Bible. Every Sunday school curriculum has a story on this battle. And you can picture the scene in your mind. There is the city of Jericho. It's imposing. It's a, it's a walled city. And then as we keep looking at this city, we see the men of Israel, and they're in this odd sort of formation with the Ark of Israel there, and they're walking around it. And they do this for six straight days. Day after day, they circle around this city. Then on the seventh day, they do this strange thing. Seven times, they blow the ram's horns. They all shout at the top of their lungs, and then the walls of the city fall flat. And Joshua and the battle of Jericho is included in every storybook Bible. Why? Because it's a great miracle. We, we see the Lord fighting for his people. Here is the power of Yahweh. He takes down the city walls. And we see great grace in this because Rahab the prostitute is saved from this destruction. She believed in the Lord and, and she was rescued. And then we see the people of the Lord march on and go and take the land. It is great victory and we're encouraged. And so as we think about the scene from that perspective, all is well, so far so good. But if we go to the story and we read every single word of it, every single verse of it, it gets uncomfortable. Chapter six, verses 20 and 21. The book says, so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And you go down three verses, chapter 6, verse 24. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Did you catch what the book of Joshua just said? <laughs> Think about the city of Jericho. Nothing living survived. Beasts of burden. All of them put to death by the edge of the sword. Even more, all people. And think about it. All people. That means children and babies moms and dads, grandpas and grandmas, the aged, the infirm. Everyone who breathed was put to death by the edge of the sword. And then they burned everything with fire. That's pretty uncomfortable. That's really uncomfortable. That's our first scene. We go to a second scene. And this scene comes before the battle of Jericho. And this scene is a scene full of mystery and strangeness and intrigue. Now, let me set it up for you. And so in the chapters leading up to the battle of Jericho, there's all of this preparation. And when we come to this specific scene, all the preparation for conquest and preparation and, and battle has been complete. Joshua has sent spies into the land and they have spied it out. The people have crossed over the Jordan into the land and that was a great miracle in itself. The men of Israel all have been circumcised and they've been brought into fellowship with the Lord. The Passover has been celebrated and all the wondrous works of salvation has been remembered by the people of God. And so we're at this point, everyone, everything is prepared to go and take the land. But before Israel can do anything, Joshua encounters a mysterious man. The text describes him like this, chapter 5, verse 13. 
Behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And as readers, we start asking questions. Well, who might this man be and what might this mean? A man with a drawn sword in his hands. And certainly Joshua was asking all of those questions and more. And so he goes to the man, chapter 5, verse 13, and he, he asks, yes, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And as we think about what Joshua asks, it's a good question. Joshua is, is leading Israel's armies into battle, and here is this great man with a drawn sword in his hand, and he asks the logical question, are you with us or are you against us? What should we expect from you? And so what does this strange, mysterious man say? And here, I think we get something rather uncomfortable if we sit with it and think about it long enough. This man refuses to cooperate with Joshua's question. He doesn't pick a side. Instead, he says this, chapter 5, verse 14, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And if you're Joshua, that's uncomfortable. Are you with us or are you against us? No. And what does this mean? Well, it means I think that this this Lord, this Yahweh of hosts can't be co-opted. He can't be subjugated. He can't be maneuvered. Yes, he is going to fight. He's going to send his angel armies before the people, and he will fight against all the faithless and all the sinful. He will wield, this means his sword, against the faithless and sinful Canaanites. He will wipe them out. But hear this, he will fight against all the faithless and all the sinful. This means that he will also fight against Israel if they prove to be faithless and evil. And in fact, we will see this truth in Joshua chapter seven when a man by the name of Achan acts without faith and does something quite evil. What does the Lord do? He draws out his sword and he destroys this man and his entire household. And so what do we see here? We see the uncomfortable truth that the Lord will fight for his own cause. And this means then that the Lord is a deadly threat to everyone who walks outside his covenant. He will show no partiality to Canaanite, to Israelite. You act without faith. The commander of the Lord's army will be against you. So that's a bit uncomfortable. So that's our second scene. We've got the Battle of Jericho. We've got the commander of the Lord's army. And I want to take you to the third scene. And our our third scene, our last scene, comes at the end of the book of Joshua. And so at the end of the book of Joshua, the Lord has worked and Israel has gained the land. And now they're at rest in their homes, homes that they didn't work for or make. They inherited them. And as we think about it, Joshua's work is complete as a leader. He has now grown old. The text tells us this fact multiple times at the end of the book. And he is going to leave the scene because he is old. But before he leaves the scene, he gathers all of Israel to him. And he has one last word with his people. And so the last two chapters of the book of Joshua are Joshua's farewell speech. And as we think about it, it's only fitting that a man like Joshua gets a two-chapter farewell speech. He was a great man. And so you can picture in your mind, Israel is gathered to Joshua, and Joshua, this aged, faithful man of the Lord, begins to speak to the people. 
And so what does he do? Well, he recounts the great deeds and wonders of the Lord. He strings together this story of the Lord's faithfulness to the people of God. He starts with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then he works into the Exodus story of how the Lord brought wonders to bear and drew a people out, them out from bondage. He moves and he talks about the Lord's faithfulness to their own generation, how he drove out the Canaanites before them. And then Joshua, this aged man, makes his appeal to the people. He's preaching to them. He he gives all of these imperatives in these two chapters. He says, fear the Lord, serve the Lord, cling to the Lord, obey the Lord, love the Lord your God. And then we get these memorable words, the most quoted words from the book of Joshua, Joshua 24, 15. Joshua takes his stand and he's calling to the people and he says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods, of, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Ammonites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. What an emotional scene. Try to picture it in your mind. Here's this aged, faithful servant of the Lord. Serve the Lord for decades. He's standing before you. He makes his appeal. He recounts the Lord's faithfulness. He starts commanding you. And then he talks about himself. What happens? Well, as you read the story, the appeal works. The people are all stirred up. They're eager. They are moved. And they all cry out, Joshua 24, 18. And they say to Joshua, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Now, if you're a preacher, that's pretty exciting. Mission accomplished. You have this aim. You want to stir God's people up to serve the Lord. They're stirred up. They're saying, we will serve the Lord. What else could you want if you're preaching to God's people? He calls for love and faith and service. And the people say, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. But here it gets really uncomfortable. The aged man, Joshua, is standing before the people, and he is dissatisfied with them. And so he looks upon the people, and he speaks a severe and uncomfortable word to these people. Listen to what he says, chapter 24, verses 19 and 20. You are not able to serve the Lord. Just picture this in your mind. He's been preaching to them, calling to them. What does he say? You are not able to serve the Lord. Why? Joshua explains, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. That's kind of uncomfortable. And so as you think about it, I think uncomfortable is a good word to describe the book of Joshua. The book is full of uncomfortable deeds and actions and scenes and words. And so here's the question. As God's people, why would we want to go to this book and study this book if it's so uncomfortable? Why would we want to spend four months or so in this book saturating ourselves with all that God says in this book? Well, a few reasons come to mind. First reason is this. We need this uncomfortable book because this uncomfortable book is designed to shape and mold us, to change us, our character, who we are. 
we should expect that this book, the book of Joshua, is going to teach us how to live in this fallen world. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We should expect to be instructed from the book of Joshua. Even more, we can reason that without this book, we won't be able to grow up as mature men and women in the Lord. We should expect that this book is going to form us The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16 saying this, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? Well, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We should expect that this book is going to grow us up in Jesus. We should be getting stronger and wiser from this book. In fact, the scriptures even call us to imitate some of the people we find in the book of Joshua. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 and 31 says this, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. But I think there's even a more important reason. We need this uncomfortable book, secondly, because this uncomfortable book reveals to us our God, His kingdom, and ultimately his Christ. In this book, we really get to see what the Lord has done, what this book does. Page after page, it beckons to us, it's calling to us, come and see the works of our great God. Come and see. Even more, in this book, we get to see the kingdom of God in provisional form. It is set before us in detail. What does it look like for our God to rule over particular people in a particular place at a particular point in time of history? The book of Joshua shows us. It shows us. Even more, this book readies us for and leads us to Jesus himself. We can be sure that according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that this uncomfortable book will make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what this book will do. And so as we begin this study, I want to begin by assuring you that this book will do you great good if you come to it with faith. Even more, I want you to feel that you actually need this book. You actually can't grow up into Jesus and become a full-grown man, a full-grown woman in Jesus without this book. We need moral transformation. We need character formation. We need to see and know and love God and his kingdom and his Christ. And so, therefore, we need the book of Joshua. We can't live without the book of Joshua. Now, we need to do more work here because it's one thing to know that you need the book of Joshua. We're Christians, okay, this is God's word, I need it, I can't live without it. But it's altogether a different thing to be able to get the good out of the book of Joshua. We know that there's good in this book, but how do we appropriate this good to ourselves? How do we get this good and apply this good to ourselves? And that's the big question. And I think the answer to that question lies in seeing Joshua as a whole, I think if we can just take our arms and if we're able to wrap our arms around the entirety of the book of Joshua, the answer will become visible. Maybe to you even this morning, the answer will become obvious of how we get the good out of the book of Joshua. And so what I wanna do as we start this series is I wanna give you a sentence that sums up, I think, the book of Joshua. 
And I think this sentence, is, as we meditate on it, is going to teach us how we appropriate the good out of this book to ourselves. And so the sentence is this. God gives to his people the promised inheritance through a faithful leader who brings the judgments of God upon the land. So God gives to his people the promised inheritance through a faithful leader who brings the judgments of God upon the land. I just want to work through that sentence, breaking it up into four pieces, working through it slowly. We're going to spend months working through this sentence, but just giving you an overview, just to give you a taste of how we'll be able to appropriate this book to ourselves. So the first piece of that sentence is this, God gives to his people the promised inheritance. And so the inheritance is the land. And the land, as you look at the book of Joshua, is central to the book. The whole book can be outlined in reference to the land. So in chapters one through four, what does Israel do? It crosses over into the land. Then in chapters five through 12, the Lord gives the land and Israel inherits the land of Israel through holy war. In chapters 13 through 21, specific and what may seem to us tedious descriptions and allotments are given to Israel. But the land is allotted to them, and then they take rest in the land. And then in chapters 22 through 24, instructions and directions are given to Israel. Why? So that they might serve the Lord in the land and so keep their inheritance in the land. Now, how does this help us? It helps us in a couple different ways. First of all, this helps us because this moves the story of the Bible forward. Remember, Abraham was promised a land. And what does God do in the book of Joshua? He is following through on his promise to Abraham. He is giving the land to his children. And so what is, what is the book of Joshua preaching to us? Again and again, chapter after chapter, even when we get to these frustrating chapters of chapters 13 through 21, where we get all of these descriptions of these places and cities and, and boundary markers, the book is preaching this. God is faithful. What he promises, he gives. And there's application for us there all over the place. We need to know the faithfulness of God. But I think there's more for us here as we think about the land. This land for Israel is not just a nice place to live in or a place to grow some food and keep some animals or a great place, a great neighborhood to raise some children. This land is Edenic in character. Israel is gaining in the book of Joshua by the gift of God what Adam and Eve forfeited through their sin and rebellion. Israel will have rest and live in the place where God dwells. God is giving Israel a new Eden in this land. And this has immediate impact upon us. Because when we read this book with our eyes upon the whole storyline of the Bible, what we see in the pages of Joshua is just a type, a shadow, a foretaste of what is to come. We can think about it like this. The land of Canaan is just the taking of the beachhead. Think about World War II. It's like the, the storming of the taking the, the beachhead. But what's the goal if you're storming a beachhead? It's not just taking the beachhead. You got your eyes on bigger and greater things. And as you read the whole Bible and you connect Joshua and the inheritance in Joshua to what God is doing in all of Scripture, we see this. God's aim is to give the whole world to his people. And his aim is that the whole world, we become a new Eden. 
That's what we see here is a type of what is to come. And as we think about it like that, we're actually drawn into the story of Joshua because it shares all these similarities with our own position. And this is the very hope of the gospel. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, we have been promised as God's people an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading that will soon be revealed to us. And Peter is intentionally borrowing this word from the Old Testament like books like Joshua, inheritance. And so sure is this promise You have to love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. He's arguing with these fleshly Corinthians, and he says this, All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Did you hear what Paul said? What's yours? The world. It's yours. What is God doing? He's going to take the world for himself. It's going to be a new Eden, and God's people are going to dwell there in his presence. And so what the book of Joshua is doing is it's pointing us forward at every single point to the inheritance that will soon be ours through Jesus Christ. And what is that? A new heavens and a new earth and resurrection. Resurrection. So that's the first piece of the sentence. God gives to his people the promised inheritance. That should help us read this book and fill us with excitement as we think about what God is doing in this book. We can add, God gives the promised inheritance to his people through a leader. So there's no secret to who the leader is in the book of Joshua. It's Joshua. Joshua is before our eyes throughout the entirety of the book. It is Joshua who succeeds, the, who succeeds Moses and, and takes up the reins of leadership. It is Joshua who speaks with the Lord and who speaks to the people on behalf of the Lord. It is Joshua who the people must listen to upon threat of death. It is Joshua who leads the people of God into battle. It is Joshua who gives the land to the people of God. Finally, it is Joshua that the Lord exalts, chapter 3, verse 7. And as a result, the fame of Joshua is spread throughout the entirety of the land of Canaan, chapter 6, verse 27. And I think it would be no overstatement to say that the fate of Israel and the whole project of conquest rests upon the shoulder of one man, Joshua. Joshua's success is Israel's success. Joshua's victories are Israel's victories. And if Joshua were to fail, Israel too would fail. Joshua is, as we survey the book, the Lord's chosen instrument of salvation. And Joshua's name gives testimony to this fact. Joshua, what does it mean? Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. Now, this is where it gets interesting for us. If you take Joshua's name in Hebrew and then you render it in Greek, you get something like Iesus. And then if you take Iesus in Greek and you translate it in English, what you find our English translations giving is Jesus. And the point is this, it's a simple one. Jesus and Joshua share the same exact name. We miss it in our English translations because we read the book of Joshua, it says Joshua, and then we get to the New Testament, it says Jesus. But in Hebrew, it's the same exact name. Yahweh is salvation. And as we look at the story in the book of Joshua, they share more than just a name. 
Jesus is the greater Joshua. And so Joshua succeeds Moses. And as we think about it, Jesus is the greater Joshua who succeeds, not just Moses, but succeeds all the prophets and overshadows all the prophets. He is the great prophet to come. We see Joshua in the book leading God's people into victory and rest. And Jesus is the greater Joshua who leads God's people into battle and secures for them a greater victory and a perfect rest. And as we think about it, it is most appropriate to say that everything rests upon the shoulders of the greater Joshua. The greater Joshua's success is our success. The greater Joshua's victories are our victories. And what this book is going to do again and again and again is going to lead us to think about the greater Joshua to come, our Lord Jesus. So that's the second piece. God gives the promised inheritance to his people through a leader. We can add a third piece. God gives the promised inheritance to his people through a faithful leader. Faithful leader. Faith reigns supreme in the book of Joshua. In this book, we get a full picture of faith. For example, in Rahab, we learn that faith flees judgment in calamity and hopes in God. In Achan, we learn that unbelief and disobedience that springs up from unbelief causes the anger of the Lord to burn. In Caleb, we see the work of faith. Faith does what? It grabs hold of the promises and gets to work on them. Even more, we see in this book the practical outworking of faith. Faith obeys the word of God and dutifully fulfills the law of God. Faith shuns fear and worry and fright. Faith makes a man strong in the Lord. Faith gives courage and boldness. Faith makes the heart large and willing to risk everything upon the Lord. And all of this is exemplified in the man Joshua. The book begins with the charge, and we'll look at this closely next week. Chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord says to Joshua, Only be strong in the Lord and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law of Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. What is the Lord commanding Joshua? Keep faith. Keep faith. Do it. You must do it. And the amazing thing about the book of Joshua is Joshua actually does it. He actually keeps faith by and large throughout the entirety of the conquest. We see an amazing work of God's grace in his life. In fact, because Joshua keeps the law of God by faith, at the end of the book, Joshua is transformed. Joshua chapter 24, verse 19. As the book starts, he is called the assistant of Moses the successor of Moses. But when the book ends, he stands on equal footing with Moses. He is called, chapter 24, verse 19, the servant of Yahweh, the same title that Moses received. And so as we study this book and as we look at Joshua, we should expect to learn about faith. What does it look like to practice faith practically in a fallen and twisted world? And and Joshua sets an example for all of God's people. In fact, this book is going to call us to faith, for that is what Joshua will do. He's going to come to us, chapter 24, verse 15. He's going to say to us again and again throughout this story, choose this day whom you will serve. He's going to be preaching to us. Are you going to keep faith? Are you going to trust the Lord? 
Do you actually live by faith in this world? So that's our third piece. God gives the promised inheritance to his people through a faithful leader. And this brings us to the last piece of the definition. God gives the promised inheritance to his people through a faithful leader who brings the judgments of God upon the land. And so war, or to be more precise in the book of Joshua, holy war, is a defining feature of the book. Israel inherits this land that God has given to them, not through negotiation or treaty or purchase, but through sword and blood. Sword and blood. And we're going to talk a lot about this, but we can just say this. Many see in the pages of Joshua barbarity and genocide and evil, but for the Christian, none of these words stick. In fact, I'll just put it out here like this. What Joshua does in the pages of the book of Joshua is good and right and holy, noble, praiseworthy. And we can say this, all of the war we see, because Joshua is not acting according to his own dictates or reason, but he is acting this way in bringing this war upon these people because God told him to. And the Lord commands the destruction of these people. Why? Well, God is not a genocidal maniac. He does it for one simple reason, their profound sinfulness. Why must these Canaanites die? Because they are sinners. And what we find in the pages of Joshua is nothing other than God's faithfulness to the promise he spoke, the first promise he gives as the Bible begins, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is the Lord doing? He is intensifying the conflict between the two lines, the godly seed and the seed of the serpent. And here we see in provisional form the victory that God will bring as the line of the serpent is destroyed. In fact, the holy war we see in the book of Joshua actually prepares us for Jesus. Let me ask you, what did Jesus come to this world to do? Well, he came for holy war. 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Think about it, just as Joshua stormed the land of Canaan, so too our Lord Jesus has stormed into this world doing battle with our enemy, sin and Satan and death. And this is our joy for our Lord has triumphed over all of his enemies. And he has done it through his sin-atoning death and his glorious resurrection from the dead. And just as Joshua in the book bids Israel to share in the victory that the Lord is working through him, I love this scene in Joshua chapter 10. There are these, these kings and they gather together and they conspire and they move against the people of Israel. And the Lord gives them this great victory And Joshua captures these kings and he brings them before the the leaders of the people and he casts them down on their faces and then he bids Israel's leaders, chapter 10, verse 24, he says to God's people, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. What is Joshua saying? Come, share in the victory that God is giving me. Triumph over these kings. Stick your foot on their neck. And what happens in Jesus? Jesus comes to us with an even better word because he's the greater Joshua who's, who's worked a greater victory. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. This is the word of the Lord Jesus. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your 
feet. What is Jesus bidding us in the gospel? He says, come, put your feet on the neck of this one. I have conquered. Come share in my victory. And so in Joshua, we get a taste of the victory that we have in Jesus. And in these pages, we get to anticipate the fullness of this victory. Because there is yet a conquest to take place to take place at the end of time. For Christ shall come, he shall split open the skies, and he shall judge both the quick and the dead. And God's people, if you are faithful, will get to share in that day. In fact, you will even get to judge angels with the Lord Jesus. And so there's the book summed up. God gives to his people the promised inheritance through a faithful leader who brings the judgments of God upon the land. I think, as we wrap our arms around the book of Joshua with that sentence, I think that opens up all these different avenues for application, leading us to God, leading us to his kingdom, leading us to his Christ and how he works in this world. And we can trust as we study this book in the weeks and months to come that God's going to meet us and feed us and help us with this book, this uncomfortable book. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on this study. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your word. It is rich and good and true. And as we look forward to this study and the book of Joshua, we we plead for your help. Father, we need faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please you. Without faith, it will be impossible to apply this book and gain good from this book. And so we plead that you give us faith as we go into these pages and read, and study, and think. We pray that you would would show us yourself, and your son, and your kingdom, and that you would transform us, and mold us. Oh, Father, we pray, would you do us great good? We pray this in your son's name.